to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. Today we're talking with fellow writer Catherine Dillon, who writes for Medium. Catherine Dillon is a Cleveland Heights, Ohio-based author who writes about food, mental health, and anything else that strikes her fancy. She resides with her husband and their very spoiled cats in a ridiculously large 1910-built home that they are all slowly attempting to renovate. Catherine is a product manager by day and holds an MBA from Roosevelt University and a BS in magazine journalism from Ohio University. She believes life should be lived to the fullest and particularly loves delicious meals, baseball games, craft beer, rock concerts, art museums, and the symphony, not necessarily in that order. I had a wonderful time talking with Catherine and we reminisced about food, um, food media, and rock concerts. It's a wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, this is Dean Jones, the well-seasoned librarian. I'm talking to Catherine Dillon, my fellow writer on Medium, and I just wanted to start off asking you, um, when I started writing for Medium, I kind of looked towards you as somebody to like to kind of set, like, I figure like you're like how it's done. Like, I looked at your stuff and I thought, you, you were an example to me, I think, of somebody on Medium who's like one of the people that writes well and, and like is a professional. So I wanted to ask you about your background as a writer and how, how you started and how long you've been writing. Well, I have to say that that's one of the nicest things anyone's really ever said to me. Um, I have a degree in journalism, but I've never actually worked in the field. So my love of writing goes way back to my childhood. I was like the little kid when I was four or five years old, like writing poems and writing, you know, stories in a blank book and writing a screenplay that I made my friends perform and, and things like that. Um, and then as a teenager, lots and lots of angst written essays and poetry and that kind of thing. Um, but then, you know, I got my degree and my life kind of took me down a different path. And I I went into the corporate world and lost all of that. I just kind of put it on hold for 20 years. And so it wasn't really until I started writing for Medium a couple of years ago that I went back to that, <laughs> went back to writing. And it, in some ways I could say it's, it's kind of saved me um, because getting back to that feeling of, of self-expression and of sharing with other people has been incredibly meaningful, like more than I even ever expected. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering about that because, you know, I, obviously writing and online writing is, is, you know, there's lots of platforms, but I think Medium gives us some degree of autonomy. And I was also thinking of, there's another um, online platform that you wrote about, um, trying to find the name of it. You wrote news it. Break. Yeah, yeah, Newsbreak. Yeah, you see. Yes. And um, what do you think about Medium as far as the autonomy and Newsbreak as far as the autonomy goes and like, what's the differences I know that you wrote in one of your articles about the differences of both. If you could just touch on that. Yeah. Um, one of the things I love about Medium is the fact that I can pretty much publish whatever I want. Um, whether anyone decides to read it is entirely another story. But, um, you know, I can publish whatever I want to. And I feel like the community of writers is something that's really meaningful to me there. I've also never really had... I haven't had a lot of cruel comments, shall we say. I had one story early in the pandemic that went viral um, to some extent, and very surprisingly. And I got some comments that were kind of mean um, with that and eventually had to stop reading the comments. <laughs> and my husband told me at that point, you know, if you, 
if you're going to put your opinions out there on the internet, you have to be prepared to have a thicker skin than this. And if you can't do that, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Um, and he was right. But that was a good, it was a good experience because when I started writing for Newsbreak, you, you do not want to read the comments. They're terrible. Um, it, it is a lot of trolls and it, it's people who forget that there's a human being on the other side of every story. <laughs> um, the thing I like about Newsbreak, the thing I don't like about Newsbreak is that it, it's sometimes confusing as to why they rate articles a certain way and whether they're actually distributing your work. But the thing I do like about it is because of their local fo focus, it's encouraging me to write in a more locally oriented journalistic style. And that's something completely different than what I've been doing on Medium. It kind of takes me back to my, to my education a little bit and a style of writing that I haven't done a whole lot. Yeah, I, you know, because I, I remember I saw you just the other day, we were both at one of our fellow writer, Terry Barr's readings. And when you mentioned community, that's one of the things I really love is that, you know, you get a lot of positive feedback. I've had people email me from Medium, just, and we I've developed friendships through Medium. And it reminds me, I think, of the early age of like LiveJournal back in the 90s, how there was a lot of communities in the writing there. But like, I've also seen the other side of that too, and I think you touched on this for um, Newsbreak, is that the more people get popular and the more people read people's writings, you get that whole peanut gallery thing where people start getting nasty. Or you just get a pile on, I think, where people will, I think people will mention something and then you'll get it. Like I've seen somebody wrote an article as innocent about uh, oat milk, weirdly enough, and they got all these uh, vegetarians piling on saying, you shouldn't drink milk, it's bad for you. And there was like about 30 comments that are negative about. And it's weird because you, you do get like a lot of, the more, the more notoriety you get, the more hits you get, the more claps you get, the more you have a chance of people piling on and doing the negative comments and everything. So right. <laughs> it sets you up because like if, you, if you, you start off and you're getting a lot of, you know, it's all sunshine and rainbows and then suddenly you say the wrong thing and, you know, people suddenly start piling on and it's crazy because it really can be disillusioning a little bit. Right, very much so. And I've written about a lot of, aside from my food writing, I've written about a lot of pretty personal topics, um, not least of which is my recovery from an eating disorder. So you know, like you're really putting yourself out there. But the reason I do it is because I think it's important. I think that it's important for people to know that you don't have to be a an 80 pound teenager to have an eating disorder. You can get diagnosed when you're 46, like I did. Um, so I, I write that stuff for a reason, but I also have to be prepared that not every comment's gonna be particularly friendly. <laughs> yeah, from what I've seen, and this is weird because it's, I've, seen, I've seen such negative comments from people in the articles where people are writing specifically about weight loss, eating disorders, um, anything, you know, involving diet health or fitness the vitriol is, is palpable and it's like i don't yeah. understand why people are so nasty but it seems like such a personal thing to people that it really pushes their buttons yes in in a variety of different ways because it is subjective to a certain extent we're always learning more about health and diet and, and weight loss and you know whether you should try to lose weight or not or how you should or all these different things and everybody has a different perspective on it and the science we're constantly learning from as it evolves. So people see an opinion or a perspective that's different from theirs and it kind of challenges what they think they know and that can be scary. And I think that's a lot of why people tend to lash out about it. 
I think the worst thing I've seen myself is that I wrote an article that was a recipe that had something with meat in it. And somebody said, well, you should try and doing this as a vegetarian dish. And I was, I, I learned from somebody's article where they said how to respond to people that write horrible things or even things that just are counter to what you're writing. I just said, thank you for your comments. And I leave it at that. And I don't know, people usually don't go further than that so far. So, but I haven't yeah. heard anything any very controversial yet, so. <laughs> and that'll be your decision whether you want to or not, I suppose, you know, as you go along. <laughs> I, I wrote one, I think, about um, parenting and raising my son as a pagan. And uh, I think I expected that one to have a lot of nasty comments. And I didn't get any, which was a shock. So, I don't know. I'll have to go back and find that one. That sounds interesting. I don't think I saw it. So I want to ask you, um, how is, the, how is since the one thing that I see with all the writers um, on Medium and other forums is we've all been in quarantine and I think it's affected our lives, of course, and it's affected on writing. How has the quarantine affected your writing? Well, I have written, it's kind of surprising, I've written quite a bit less, unfortunately, and part of it is just my creative brain sometimes shuts down when I'm really stressed. <laughs> um, it's usually one thing or the other. It's either it shuts down altogether or just so much comes out that I don't know what to do with it and how to make it into something cohesive to turn into an article. But the thing that I noticed right away with the pandemic was that I lost my ability to multitask. And I mean, most of us do multitask regularly. I've read some studies that say that women do it more and better. I don't know if that's true or not. But um, for some reason, I, I just couldn't focus on more than one thing at a time. And I think it was just the constant underlying stress and anxiety of not knowing, you know, what is this? What's happening? How long is it going to be going on? And a lot of my writing is done in fits and starts throughout the day. Like I have 10 minutes between a meeting and I'll jot down an idea and work on something. I don't, I haven't before the pandemic had like, I'm going to write for an hour or two now. It's all been in between other things as I go through my busy day. And I lost the ability to do that. So I've had to get creative. One thing that I've done that I'm, I'm just in love with is I've, I looked on Meetup and I found an organization called Shut Up and Write. And I found it specifically looking for writers in my area or writing organizations in my area, which is Cleveland Heights, Ohio. And found some online sessions. So I decided to experiment with it, but it's national and international too. And it's great because you have essentially two hours and you're writing with other people, but by yourself, like they're not bothering you or anything. So it's very focused. It's giving yourself permission to write for a certain period of time. And it's really, really helped me. <laughs> so that's, that's a good thing that's come out of the pandemic is because I couldn't fall back on my normal multitasking mode. I had to look for something different that would still allow me to keep writing. Now, um, I first, I think, became aware of your writing um, when I read some of your food articles and you've written a few and they're, and they're wonderful. Um, so where did you get start, started writing, uh, food, food, doing food writing? And um, what has been like, I think, did, did you always want to write about food or, or art recipes or did you just kind of come into it? Well, I kind of came into it. I, um, I started learning to cook when I was very young. Both my parents are wonderful cooks. Um, 
but I also then co-owned a restaurant and nightclub when I was in college in my hometown. And wow. yeah. yeah, I want to hear about, I want to hear about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, the funny thing is I, it took me a long time to get my undergraduate degree because of this. Um, it took me seven years plus already having some credits when I started college because I, I bought into this, this restaurant and got so engaged with it that I started going to college part-time as a result. So it's um it's still there it's in athens ohio where i was born and grew up and lived for 28 years because i stayed because of the restaurant um and it's called casa nueva it's it's worker owned everybody buys in um, they do have employees as well but you can be on an ownership path if you want to and it's basically mexican and world cuisine with a strong local food focus so that was the first place that i learned about the local food movement the slow food movement um that sort of thing and i it's also really where i learned to cook like to experiment in the kitchen um the food manager once brought me back like he went to the farmer's market and brought me back some eggs some broccoli like a rutabaga some watermelon like all these different things and said here make a dinner special <laughs> so um i got a lot more confident in the kitchen as a result of that um, i did that for six years i was also president of the board of directors for a while so i learned how to run a small business too and was one of the most influential things that I've ever done in my life in terms of just what it taught me and, and the things that, you know, how long, I think I left there in 2000. So it's been over two decades and I'm still constantly using skills and, and, and things that I learned from that experience. So um, when, have you read any food writers that influenced you or that made you think that you wanted to do it as well or uh, what about cookbook writers as well? Has any, have any throughout your life influenced you in your writing or your cooking even? I am a huge fan of food bloggers. Um, I think I first discovered that people were writing, just regular people were writing about food um, with the blog called Orangette, which was uh, written by Molly Weisenberg. She doesn't, I don't think she keeps up with it anymore. She's written a couple of books since then. Um, but I, I follow a lot of different food bloggers because everybody's style is different um, and they're presenting, you know, different kinds of recipes and that kind of thing. So I follow Cookie and Kate for vegetarian stuff, Smitten Kitchen for stuff that's a little more, you know, requires a little more skill and time sometimes. Um, Skinny Taste, while it's kind of a silly name, it has wonderful recipes that are healthy without seeming like diet food. <laughs> um, and uh, one that I've discovered relatively recently is Budget Bites, and she's you know, more focused on people operating on a food budget, but her recipes are wonderful. <laughs> so I do a lot of different um, food blogs that I follow. One of my favorite writers overall is Barbara Kingsolver, and she has a wonderful book called Animal Vegetable Miracle. And it's about their experience with um, subsisting on an, an almost entirely local food diet. That's one that I probably will continue to reread my, in, like my entire life <laughs> because it's just so good. Yeah, I've heard good things about that, and I've went, wanted to read that. I've I've seen I worked in bookstores. I've seen her name. She's a very popular writer, and I've never gotten around to that one. But it looks like a good one. Yeah, I I, th I want to read everything she's ever written. I love her. <laughs> um. So in the area that you live now, um, is there like a local food kind of um climate going on there, or what what kind of things influence you where you live as far as the cooks around your area? Oh my goodness, there's, I was blown away when we moved to the Cleveland area about um, 10 and a half years ago. And the 
the suburb that we currently live in is very walkable. So, you know, before the pandemic, we could walk to, to restaurants and bars and coffee shops and different things. And there's a very strong presence overall with um, it's a, an organization called Cleveland Independent Restaurants. Mm -hmm. And so it's all the, the non-chain people, basically. Um, and they'll do things like a restaurant week where they all run specials and you can get like a special menu for 30 bucks or that kind of thing. Um, there's also a pretty strong sustainability movement in Cleveland. There's a whole, um, it, they call it Green City on a Blue Lake. And it, I attended one of their sustainability summits when I first moved to the area and local food is a big part of that. There's a lot of farmers markets. There's farms outside of the city. Um, one of the things I like about Cleveland is that we live in a very urban setting, but we can drive, you know, 20 minutes and be in countryside or farmland. Um, so there's a lot of, it's easy to get your hands on locally grown food. And there are a lot of um, CSAs as well, community supported agriculture, where you can buy a package and get, you know, a box of food every week. So yeah, a lot, a lot going on here and I cannot wait to get back to restaurants. Yeah. Me too. I mean, I think that we're all kind of just jonesing for that. I know that I, I've had a few friends write about, I went to a restaurant tonight, you know, exclamation point. And just yes. like, oh, oh, really? <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> Let us live vicariously because I don't feel ready yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I mean, we've always had food porn before, but like now it's become such a scarcity and such a rare thing. We're like, oh, oh, you, you went out to a restaurant. Oh, yes. you know, and it's, uh, it's so different now. I know that um, yeah. I've been through Ohio and uh, I really liked it. And I've had a lot of friends that have lived there that loved it, you know, and then there's a lot of different areas there yeah. um, that have different climates. So it's not just like homogenous. I know I have friends that live there and I'm always surprised at how um, free and freaky it is in some of the big cities and stuff like that. I'm like, wow, it looks like you're in Berkeley or, yes. <laughs> or Oakland yes. or something like that. So I was really, yep. I was cool. Yeah, my hometown is in the Appalachian foothills. It's down in the southeastern part of the state, and Ohio University is located there. So that's how I wound up there because my dad's a or was a professor, um, and it is it is like this little time capsule because a bunch of people went there in like the '60s and '70s for college and never left. So there's kind of a big hippie scene, and it's very. Um, very progressive and a lot of fun and it's beautiful countryside too um so yeah my parents my my father passed away my mom now lives up here in cleveland as does my sister so i don't get down to athens as much as i used to but i think i'm due for a trip because i start it's in my blood i start <laughs> needing to go there after a while i have i have uh friends that live there and then when they didn't when they lived far away they were always uh pining for the uh god what is it it's uh four-way chili or it's chili oh, on spaghetti yes it's the uh, cincinnati style yeah 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 and, and uh i think the hot dogs and i think pierogies and, yeah pierogies are big <laughs> yeah my friend liked something i think she called getta it was like a sausage kind of thing i i'd never I heard don't of think i know about that yet <laughs> yeah so i've always heard about people talking about all the specialties and everything regional things yeah yeah so um, I wanted to ask you, um, you wrote an article about, I think, Michael Simon's influence. Yes. You know, in his yes. cookbook on your cooking. And yes. I was going to ask, so do you, do you watch any like celebrities on television or do you follow any celebrities? I mean, I know I follow about a million people and there's so much 
stuff on Netflix and the Food Network and other channels that we can watch. So what are you watching right now? What are you binging on? So I binge, well, here's all, here's my caveat. I have not had cable television since 1999. <laughs> um, so we do stream Netflix, um, but we don't, we just try not to spend a ton of money on like TV of any sort. So right. I don't, there are a lot of things I can't see, but I'm a huge, huge fan of the Great British Baking Show. Oh, God, yeah. I'm not that much of a baker myself, aside from loads of Christmas cookies and that kind of thing. But I just love how it seems to be such a supportive atmosphere in comparison yeah. to a lot of the shows. Like I, I used to watch like some of Gordon Ramsay's stuff. And then eventually I just thought, oh, this is too mean. There's so much hostility in the world as it is, I don't need to really watch it on television. So I, I comforted myself over the past year by re-watching all of the Great British Baking Show episodes that are available to me. And I, I mean, it was great. It was just like, let me get lost in some awesome baking for a while and nice people. Um, but I do love Michael Simon. I mean, he's from Cleveland and I got the chance to see him cook once at a, at a food show. My husband got me a ticket to the to the live, you know, cooking segment that he was doing. So that was really cool. I loved his restaurant Lola, which was in downtown Cleveland on a really cool little strip called Fourth, East 4th Street. And it closed during the pandemic and is not going to reopen. So I'm, I'm grieving that <laughs> for sure. Um, but mostly, I mean, I do follow more food bloggers than celebrity chefs, chefs probably. Yeah, I mean, Michael Simon, he really knows. I mean, he, I think a lot of them have experience, but he really has been in the trenches as yes. yeah he knows what he's doing really I mean, yeah I, I i have to i think everybody has respect for him and because when he talks he really knows what he's talking about right right and he's done it from the ground up he isn't somebody who just like bought a restaurant and you know became a celebrity or was a celebrity already who decided they wanted a restaurant i mean he he's built his um, empire so to speak from from the ground up you know from not knowing if he was going to have enough money to make payroll and that kind of thing so he gets it my favorite thing about him i think is that he seems slightly uncomfortable with celebrity <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> i respect that <laughs> yeah me too it's just like he always seems to be standing there like ah oh, what the what the hell I am i believe doing I'm, yeah i can't <laughs> believe i'm here this is not my beautiful life <laughs> Yeah, because you see so many others that really seem to court it, although, I, you know, you wonder how much they like it, but like, you know, it's the job, it's the money, it pays the mortgage. <laughs> so right, they're right. in there and, you know, he's not doing like dog food commercials or stuff like that. You know, right. <laughs> right. There's so many really good ones on TV. I mean, I love, I love the ones that just explore and talk about food and talk about other people's food too. Like David Chang's Ugly Delicious is just mm -hmm. phenomenal. And I love to see him like talking to movie stars and people about the food that they eat and just, I mean, because it's like what we do. We, we sit and talk about food. Like when I'm with my brother and his wife, you know, when my wife and my brother and his wife are sitting talking, you know, he'll bring out some, some food and some, some wine and we'll talk about it, you know, because it does come up in conversations a lot. Oh, yeah. We, we, we do talk about it. And if you've worked in a restaurant, if you work around food and stuff, you know, it, it affects you, you know, like you said, you have a lot of farm to table, you have a lot of farms out where you live. It's people's livelihoods and we're touched by that. We see it right. everywhere. Yeah. So it's something that, you know, it's fun to talk about too. We enjoy it. I, I read books about people just discoursing that aren't even chefs necessarily, just discoursing on going to restaurants, going to farms. Mm -hmm. It's very different from what it was. I think it, when it used to be just like, I think the Galloping Gourmet and Julia Child 
Yes. <laughs> and yes. that was pretty much it. There wasn't, nobody really talked about where the cheese was coming from, where the, mm-hmm. you know, where the bread is coming from. It was what you bought at the store and that was it. And now we're like, oh, I go down to this guy and he makes bread and I go down here and I get the cheese. And it's, yeah. The eggs are down the street, you know. <laughs> We just got a new cheese shop in my neighborhood. It's like a mile and a half from where I, from my house. And I'm so excited. We got a tasting platter from there. Um, oh, it's nice. called Marsh- Marchant Manor. And this woman was a pathologist, I believe, a, a doctor of some sort at the Cleveland Clinic. So this is like her second sort of career. She, she took a bunch of cheese making classes and now she's making these wonderful cheeses in Cleveland Heights. <laughs> now what, what are some of your favorite cheeses? Um, are you adventurous? Oh. Do you, will you eat the runny cheeses and stuff? Or you- oh, I will eat any cheeses, pretty much. Um, I love cheese; it's my weakness. I Me would too. be I would be skinny if it if it weren't for cheese, and maybe wine, maybe wine and beer too. But um, yeah. that's another story. Yeah. Um, I love I love soft cheeses. Um, I love like a nice sharp aged cheddar. We used to ask questions when I co-owned the restaurant. We would ask funny questions like, "If you were cheese, what would you be?" And I would be Brie, um, and yeah. then we would ask like, "Who would play you in in the movie of your life?" And <laughs> we yeah. won't go there. <laughs> I well, I uh, yeah, I always I always think of that all the time, and I'm always typing people and stuff like that. But I, I always yeah. think <laughs> if I had to have somebody play me in a movie, I would have Vincent D'Onofrio play. Me. Oh, nice! Yeah, <laughs> I always liked him, and he's one of my favorite actors. So yeah. Well, back when I owned the restaurant, I was I was young and wild, and I always said that Betty Page would play me in the movies. So. Oh, nice! Very cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe less so now that I'm 48. <laughs> oh. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cooking. Do you have a type of food you gravitate towards? What would you say would be your? Do you have a signature dish? I hate asking people that question because it's kind of cliche. But do you have a signature dish, or is there a type of food that's your kind of go-to? Well, it's kind of funny because I I like trying new recipes so much that I almost have to force myself to go back to things that I've made before. Um, just because I, I always have a running list of hundreds of things that I want to try, but. I do, you know, I do have some favorites that I go back to and, you know, my friends and family tend to recognize me as a good cook, but I don't necessarily have a bunch of dishes that I'm known for so much, but um, there is a hot spinach dip that I make that I'm pretty famous for on the potluck circuit. Nice. <laughs> and I'm not, I, I will always share recipes. I'm not one of those people who won't share recipes, but I do make people promise that if we're going to a party, if we're going to be going to the same party, they have to ask me if I'm making the spinach dip before they decide to bring it themselves. <laughs> like I always get first dibs on bringing the spinach dip. <laughs> yeah. I think if you, if you do a lot of potlucks, which I've done in the past, you have to kind of at some point develop a signature dish that you have stuff for, because if it's impromptu or, or you have to suddenly do it, you're like, ah, okay, I can go do this now. And Yeah. 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 I think at a certain point, people will know they'll see, if they don't see immediately, if they see your dish, they'll go, oh, this person's here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I mean, my husband and I tend to eat, we eat pretty healthy overall. Um, I'd say we kind of follow like a modified Mediterranean diet just because we like, we like the foods that are associated with that. And we feel good when we eat those kinds of foods, but I really love cooking all kinds of food. Um, I like to make sure we have a variety throughout the week. So when I'm menu planning, it might be like a chicken dish, a vegetarian dish, a main dish salad, a pasta, you know, different things through the rotation. Um, we, we are not vegetarian or pescatarian or anything like that, but we don't really eat much, if any, red meat at home. Like I just don't cook it. Sometimes if we go out, we'll have it, but um, it's mostly chicken and fish and a lot of vegetarian stuff um, for us in the house. Um, but one thing, one thing that I love, my favorite thing in the whole world is putting, heating up some olive oil in a pan and putting some onions in, like, which is the start of how many recipes. And, that, and then you start to sense that aroma coming up from the pan. And it's the one thing that can snap me out of a mood where I don't feel like cooking. <laughs> like, right. you know, I just have to make something that starts with that and then I'll be okay. Now, we mentioned earlier restaurants. Is there any, are there any restaurants uh, that you're hoping to get back to or any types of restaurants you're hoping to get back to? Well, there's a style of restaurant that that I just love. What I'm really waiting for is I want to get, I want to slide into a cozy booth in some dark corner of some, I don't even know what the cuisine is. I just know what that booth looks like and feels like um, and open a menu and let somebody wait on me because I'm, I love cooking and I've been doing an awful lot of it for the last year. We haven't, we haven't gone out at all and we've only ordered takeout a few times. And so I just, I'm, I'm ready to have somebody else just bring me my food. Yeah, prepare and bring me my food <laughs> i'm so with you there i mean there's something nice about it and it's funny too because i feel like we've gotten away from this in restaurants because we we're getting hustled in and hustled out yeah and the, i despise the fast foodization of restaurants because i think back in the 80s it started becoming where you know we had tgi fridays and all these different places that were like getting you in getting you out fast and i like to linger and like when i was in the south you would go and get a booth with friends and you'd eat and you'd talk for hours. Right. I think, I'm in California and I think there's really a lot of emphasis on the hustle, you know, getting that table cleared, getting somebody else in, getting you out, them out, you know, and, and bang, 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 doing all the work. And especially too, because uh, it's so expensive for restaurants to rent space here that I think they really look at the bottom line. Yes. But I miss, you know, commiserating with friends over food and talking. And I remember when I was, I had friends that would just go to a place and get a cup of coffee and a piece of pie, which probably isn't very profitable for a restaurant necessarily nowadays, but it was very common. Do you have any experiences like that? Yeah. Um, well, after the symphony, especially, we like to stop in one of the restaurants that's at actually in the same building as the, as the Cleveland symphony. And you can get love getting coffee and dessert after, or a cocktail or whatever after attending a symphony concert because then you just have this wonderful time to decompress and at least in that situation it's not going to be so frowned upon because they're not expecting you to order dinner at you know 10 o'clock at night right but it's the thing that I don't have a lot of pet peeves with restaurants because I know how hard it is right but one of them is like oh my gosh I just got my appetizer please don't bring my entree yet <laughs> you know that, and I have oh friends, God, yeah. like, isn't that horrible and my, one of my friends kind of trained me he won't even order the entrees until after he has his appetizer for that reason, because then they can't bring them. <laughs> they can't bring them too soon. That's smart. Yeah, yeah isn't it? Well, because, yeah, I mean, I oftentimes, almost always, 
find that the minute you order, they're like pushing you. They're like, here, here's your appetizer, but here yeah. also is your entree. And yeah. here also is, you know, and then they're like talking to you about dessert and they're giving you the dessert menus. And you're like, wow, am I getting the bums <laughs> rush here? Is it, is it 1130 at night? I mean, come right. on. yeah. And um, we've had experiences too, where they can't even fit all the plates on the table because they're bringing too much at once and you haven't finished the first thing yet. And it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? Hold it in my lap. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, exactly. No, I, yeah, I miss that. And I hope I can, we can get back to some restaurants and experience that. Cause I really like being able just to go out with my wife, get out of the house, get away from the kids and just have yeah. a drink and talk and have a leisurely getaway. And I, yeah. yeah, It's this Island we have, you know, it's, it's a place you can meet friends. It's a neutral place. You don't have to clean out your house and make everything nice and you, <laughs> right. you can go meet your friend, you know, your, your relatives or friends at a restaurant and have a nice evening. And it's a kind of a hosted area. And Absolutely. I, I, you know, I think we all, God, we need that. We're all, <laughs> we're all living in our homes, like these, like living in a submarine. <laughs> yes, it does feel like that. And my husband and I have been trying to do like various fun events for just the two of us in our house, like just we've done some themed things like let's have a disco party and i'll make food from the 70s and we'll play the music and dress oh, that's, up that's nice you know, no okay, no, okay. like that <laughs> so, okay, so now what were the foods from the 70s because that's i'm a big uh historical food nerd so i want to know me, what you guys cooked if you guys can if you can remember we did let's see i know i made notes i've been trying to make notes on all here we go disco party menu we had shrimp mousse and we had deviled eggs, and we had fondue. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, pimento cheese. <laughs> and I always do like a relish tray, veggie tray thing. Um, that's one of the things I love about doing sort of appetizer style stuff is I always make sure to have things that are vegetable oriented and fresh. But my mom used to actually make this shrimp mousse back in the 70s. So that was kind of fun. And she used to make fondue as well. <laughs> Um, fondue is really big back then I think yes. it was a running joke that every newlywed back in the 70s got at least five to six fondue pots exactly <laughs> yeah I'm pretty sure that the one my parents had was a wedding present yeah because you always <laughs> if you go to a um, flea market or a garage sale there's always like five or six unopened fondue pots there yep. yeah I think we have two I think my husband and I have two ourselves which is sad because but... fondue is really wonderful I think mm -hmm. that we lost, I think it's starting to make a comeback now because I think people are starting to explore it again, but it really is quite nice. Yeah. But not, yeah. I don't know. It kind of, I don't know. Maybe people were using Belvita and it didn't really quite see the appeal. <laughs> <laughs> well, my friends and I actually used to have fondue parties in the eighties. Like one, we'd go over to somebody's house and they had multiple fondue pots. So they do the little, you know, the hot oil where you could cook your little pieces of beef and oh, chicken yeah. Yeah, that's and then they'd have the cheese one and then they'd have a chocolate one yeah <laughs> it's just it was fun yeah i just and i love the cheeses that are used gruyere is so mm -hmm. wonderful and you don't really hear about it used in america but i've been trying to i i like to buy it when i can find it because it's such a wonderful cheese in general it's so good in a variety of things too i've even yeah, used definitely. it on pizzas and other foods it's really nice well, it's so flavorful oh yeah it really adds a lot to a lot of different things um going back to cooking writing right now are, are you reading any current cookbook authors or, or uh, food authors right now I, well i do read tend to read cookbooks like they're novels <laughs> but me too, yeah, yeah some, me too. some new ones that i've gotten lately uh let's see well i got a couple of new skinny taste cookbooks she's particularly good and a lot of fun 
what else did I get? Oh, I got a Moosewood restaurant cookbook. Um, oh God. That I was for her. Christmas. I love Molly Katzen. She's amazing. Yes. And, and I've been familiar with, the, with their restaurant since, I mean, I've never been to it myself, but my mom had their cookbooks back when I was a kid. Like the first one that came out that, that Molly Katzen wrote and, um, the restaurant that I co-owned actually took a lot of inspiration from Moosewood, which was run as a co-op as well. Um, so I'm always happy to get a new Moosewood cookbook for sure. Their Simple Suppers is wonderful, by the way. It's less, um, it's, it's great for weeknight, weeknight cooking for sure. Not quite as elaborate as some of their, their other recipes. I always tout her as I think she's one of the best cookbook writers in, in the field. I mean, she's just, her cookbooks are solid. They're so well-written. I mean, Absolutely. I think as a cookbook, as a, as a food writer, it's what I aspire to. What I love about her too is that she never really, she never, you know, forces the vegetarian thing down your throat. She's always like, here you go. Here's some, she, I don't think she even really mentions it. I think I actually read her first few cookbooks and it dawned on me later that they were vegetarian because you don't really notice yeah. it. Yeah. And you don't miss the, there's no like, you're never thinking, wow, this really could use some meat. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and that's the kind of vegetarian cooking that I love. And that's, you know, my husband and I never have, we've both dabbled with being vegetarian at various points in our lives. But what we've settled on is just, we like to eat a lot of vegetarian food and then we eat some chicken and fish too. And occasionally we'll eat, you know, a burger or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it really has worked for us because there's no, there's no restriction. We're not saying I'll never have a steak again. It's just, these are really, really good things to eat that happen to be vegetarian. And we have a lot of recipes that are like that. Well, I, I, when I worked in a bookstore, people would come in and I always, they would always point people to me for cookbook recommendations. And if people were tentatively vegetarian, they were like thinking about it. I'm like, moosewood, 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 because mm -hmm. you're not going to miss anything. It's easy. Nothing's going to be weird. It's just going to be, it's going to be nothing you have to hunt for. It'll all be stuff you can find in the grocery store. And it, none of it's hard stuff to cook. It's all regular food. So it's, you know, I, she's such a wonderful writer and her her website's great, really uh, user friendly. Uh, her, I should check it out. I actually haven't looked at her website. Her YouTube videos are really well done. I mean, she's just a consummate pro, no matter what she does. And her baking uh, work is always so well written, and she has such good techniques in her baking. Uh, she has a cookbook about breakfast that has a lot of different baking in it, and it's just genius. She's really inspired me in so many ways. I think just like her simple roasted fruit overnight where you put the fruit in a hot oven, turn it off, next morning you got this roasted fruit. And it's just oh, all purpose stuff you could use with yogurt or anything. And it's just really amazing. She's a genius. Yeah, now I need to go check out her website for sure. That sounds exciting. Yeah, and she, she also does this as a, when I was a parent of a young child, it's just some of this, so much of the stuff was really kid friendly. And she did a lot of stuff with cooking with children. So that's really nice as well. So um, I wanted to ask you too, you wrote a lot about music's impact in your um, writing and in your life. And you also talked about going to symphony. Um, can you tell me more about how music has influenced your life and your writing? Oh, absolutely. It's another thing that goes back to childhood. I started playing piano when I was four. Oh, nice. I was classically trained. I actually started college doing a double major with piano performance and music therapy, or actually mu piano performance and journalism. And then I switched to music therapy, and then I ended up not actually finishing that degree either. But um, yeah, I mean, my whole life I was performing, I was competing, I was, you know, being exposed to all different kinds of, of classical music. 
but meanwhile, then I was also going down, you know, the path of more of a teenager, like exploring the popular music that was out there. And, you know, I was, I graduated from high school in 90s. So I was mostly, I was a teenager in the 80s. And because of where I grew up, there was a lot of influence from the 70s and 60s as well, in terms of the music that, that people were listening to. I have incredibly eclectic musical taste. There are very few things that I don't like. Um, some, you might have seen comments between Terry and me where I'm, I, I'll say something like, I'm so glad you like, you know, Taylor Swift too, because it's kind of my, my, one of my guilty pleasures, you know? Um, but yeah, I, um, I don't really play piano much anymore. I have fibromyalgia and oh, yeah. over the years, it got very, very difficult to play in the manner I'd been accustomed to being able to play. Um, and so my husband's been encouraging me for decades now to just try try something it doesn't have to be classical learn how to improv learn how to you know play honky tonk piano or something fun and i really would like to do that i just haven't gotten around to it yet um but but music has been a constant presence in my life my husband's been in bands he's a he's an excellent drummer and and a really good bass player as well um so it would be it would be fun actually to be able to jam with him <laughs> Oh God, yeah. especially especially now but we do have like there's a music area in our living room that has a piano and a keyboard and some guitars and different things that that people can play if, if they're ever able to come over again that's wonderful yeah it's yeah. a lot we, we do have fun <laughs> you wrote an article about prince and i always try yes <laughs> my because my kids don't really quite get how important he was when he came out with purple rain i mean because he was out before then Right. He had been out for a while. I think Delirious was popular on the Yeah, top I think 1999 was out first, right? Yeah, yeah. And so he, he had had some, but when Purple Rain came out, it was like, I think both him and Madonna came out, I think, the same year. And I mean, because Madonna had also been out, but she just produced her first big hit album, I think, the same year as, as his. And it was just crazy because both of them were just, it was like a bomb went off. It was just like this thing that happened to the whole country simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the great things about the, the time period when I grew up was that like I was, I was in junior high school at that time and I got to like grow up with all of that. And the eighties were just such an interesting time musically because yeah. you had your pop like that, but you also had, I mean, new wave was fantastic. Yes. There was still some influence from punk. There was, you know, some electronic stuff starting and um, just, and, and rock of course. And then all of your crazy, you know, hair metal bands and yeah. <laughs> just a lot of different things, a lot of different things. There was goth stuff happening, you know, and and I love yeah. all of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I remember in, you know, in college, in high school, everybody was identifying with a certain scene. But I mean, I think a lot of us were like all over the place. I know I was. I didn't really get into one thing specifically. I liked rockabilly, punk, new wave, alt country. I mean, I liked everything. So it, people, I, I was like, how could you choose one genre? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I used to feel like people were so like you're saying they, they picked a scene and stuck with it and it was their identity. And I'm like, but I like all of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could never just, I mean, and also too, like the older stuff, there's older rock, there's jazz, the blues, you know, there's, we, we live in such an age of wealth of music. I mean, there's so many different types and so many different artists. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way we could just keep track of all of them. No, exactly. <laughs> all right. So I have one last question for you. Okay. This is a question I ask everybody. 
if you could invite 10 people, living or dead, famous or not famous, to a dinner party, who would you invite and what would you serve? And it doesn't have to be exactly 10. I just use that as a benchmark. It could be less or more. It's fine. So I was making some notes on this earlier and I thought, this sounds like the most horrible dinner party ever because I was just <laughs> picking random people that I think are really interesting. So I thought that I would invite Michelle Obama because I think she would have great stories to tell and just the personality that she is would put a lot of different types of people at ease. Yeah. She just seems like she'd be easy to talk to and she would make great conversation. Um, yeah. I would love to invite Anthony Bourdain because he'd be uh, at food and it would be so much fun to trade kitchen stories with him. God, and live vicariously yeah. through all of his travel, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a huge baseball fan, so I would invite Terry Francona, who's the manager of my beloved Cleveland Indians. Oh, yeah. Soon to, soon to be named something else. <laughs> we don't know yeah. what yet. Um, and I would like for him to explain to me why our guys can't ever seem to hit in the clutch. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would invite Neil Pert, the incredible drummer from Rush, because the thought of him being in my house just basically blows my mind. Um, and then there's an artist named Yayoi Kusama, and she she had a display or a, a, an installation a couple of years ago called Infinity Mirrors, and it was just absolutely fantastic. Um, and I would love to be in the same room as her. And then I decided I should probably stop because half these people are introverts and they probably wouldn't mingle very well. And, you know, a lot of them don't have much of anything in common with each other, but the theme is that they're always people whose brains I've wanted to pick and just, you know, kind of be in the same room. But um, as far as what I would serve, I do love dinner parties, but I actually prefer hosting cocktail parties with heavy appetizers because I think they tend to be maybe a little less pressure for both the host and the guests. You can kind of mingle or you can people watch. You don't have to worry about using the right fork or dropping something in your lap or, you know, it's just, I love doing heavy appetizers. So for this party, I'd put together kind of a tapas spread. Oh, nice. Um, hummus, stuffed grape leaves, baked feta, crusty bread, roasted potatoes, you know, whatever. Um, sort of struck my fancy. I did one for one of our, our themed nights that my husband and I had um, during the pandemic. It might have even been for our anniversary. And it was just, it was so easy and so delicious. And most of it was very like table stable. So you could put it out and not have to worry about, you know, having to refrigerate it soon. It could be, it was great at room temperature. Um, and I thought, man, I really need to make this, you know, when we're able to entertain again, I will definitely be making this for a, for a get together. Very nice. I like the, the people that you invited. A good combination of people, <laughs> I think. Kind of a wide range though. Yeah. I think most people, I think that's the one thing I asked Terry, his, he was the same way. I think everybody's kind of like that. We're like, well, here are the people I, I would invite, but I don't know if they get along, but you <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, purposefully, I, I picked people that I, that I didn't actually know because I was like, if I try to pick people from my family too, then I'm going to fret about who I'm leaving out and I didn't want to go there. So Yeah. yeah. I, I would always exclude family because yeah, it's and friends because then you're like, well, I have to pick favorites and that's going to yes. be possible. <laughs> yes. It's like you had a, a Michelle Obama over. You didn't invite me over. You're like, I couldn't. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Well, Catherine, this has been wonderful talking to you. I really want to thank you for appearing on my podcast and um, it's been a pleasure. I, I I feel like I've known you forever and you really I know uh, I've yeah. really enjoyed chatting with you too and I so appreciate the invitation it's really been a lot of fun well if anybody has not read your work yet please get on medium and and look up Catherine Dillon look for her work on um, medium and newsbreak and she's a wonderful writer and you'll enjoy her work as much as I do
Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Dean. Thank you. All right. I want to thank you for joining us for our conversation with writer Catherine Dillon. Please turn in, tune in next week when our guest will be Lloyd Arbach. Lloyd is a chocolatier in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he is also a famous paranormal author and expert who writes for Fate Magazine and is a media consultant for the American Society of Psychical Research. Please join us then for an interesting and stimulating conversation. Thank you. This podcast is supported by funds from our sponsors and donations from our listeners. If you wish to donate, simply go to the donation box on the website and click to add money. We appreciate any funds. Thank you.